I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This is another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast, and today I have one of the most brilliant legal minds that I've ever been around, none other than Jeffrey Tubin. How are you doing today, brother? I am terrific. Happy to talk to you. So, I mean, we're going to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about with you, which is O.J. Simpson, but that's way down the road, okay? That's, oh, <laughs> that, is, okay. that is way down the road. Let's start off with, have you ever seen or been a part of having the world have a line of sight into two different courtrooms at two different times, or at the same time, excuse me, with these very hot button issues talking about Ahmaud Arbery and, and Rittenhouse. And, and how do you feel about having everyone be able to see the sausage being made in these courtrooms and the transparency that's allowed? Uh, you know, um, one of the good things about being a journalist and not being a politician is that you get to change your mind with impunity. And uh, I... Um, went through a period of being skeptical about cameras in the courtroom, but I have now become an enthusiastic backer of cameras in the courtroom because, you know, this is the public's business and there is no substitute for seeing for yourself. And, you know, in the modern world to say that a, a courtroom is open to the public because a handful of people can, you know, sit on the hard benches and and get in there is not really meaningful. I mean, cameras are what that's what public means today. And um, these two trials are both interesting on their own terms, just in terms of the significance of the crimes being described, uh, being being tried, but also as insights into both the legal system and into the state of race and political relations in our country. So, I mean, I I just think it's the right thing for the country to be able to see stories like this and trials like this unfold. So I I, I was trying to think in answer to your question, whether there have ever been two cases that parallels simultaneously like this. 
I can't think of it. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's it's the right thing that they're public. So let's just go. We don't have to go too deep into the weeds, but let's go into the, the Rittenhouse case. I think that right now the the jury has this case. I mean, what are you expecting? I, I firmly believe that you're going to get some uh, you're going to get not guilties or or hung jury with an overwhelming number of jurors in favor of finding him not guilty. Although legally, I'm not sure how you can put yourself in the line of danger and claim self-defense. How do you think this is going to shake out? You know, it's it's a very interesting, complicated, difficult case. And I um, and let, let me just warn you in advance. Um, I have not really covered the Aubrey case very much at all. So I will not be able to, you know, talk in any sort of detail about it. But but Rittenhouse, I have. And um it, you know, what's interesting to me about the case is, is that it really shows the limits of the legal system and, you know, how a criminal case is often not the best way to resolve, you know, difficult problems. I mean, to me, the thing that I keep thinking about every time I think about the Rittenhouse case is why was this 17-year-old kid there in the first place? You know, what kind of terrible judgment was it for him and the people around him, including his mother, to send a 17-year-old with no training, uh, with this giant gun, uh, into an incredibly dangerous and chaotic situation that led to tragedy? And, and you know, that to me is, is just a horrifying uh, decision. However, that's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial for for homicide. And that's where the legal questions get a lot more complicated. Uh, I think particularly at the end of the trial, um, the prosecution did a pretty good job of parsing his movements uh, in such a way where I could see a guilty verdict, at least to some charges coming through. However, you know, I, I do think that um, self-defense in this context is very is very difficult for the prosecution to disprove. You know, Correct. he was being chased uh, by Rosenbaum. The other guy did have a gun. And um, those are uh, elements uh, of self-defense. Now, um, again, I think the prosecution did a pretty good job of parsing moment to moment. And um, the use of the term in summation the prosecution used of uh, that he was an active shooter, that, that he was the scary one in the context, I thought was a good argument to make. But I, I, I do think it's an uphill case for the prosecution. Do you think he was overcharged? You know, I, I, I don't really, because um, I, I think there are grounds to charge him. And, and with the inclusion, with the lesser included offenses, you know, you, you have the charges that you would have done anyway as a prosecutor. So, you know, I, I don't think um, overcharging was um, was the real prosecution problem here. I think the problem is that the evidence is complicated and difficult for the prosecution. Let's talk just briefly, if we can. I mean, I, you you became a part of this court record. You should get a copy of it and and frame it. Much to my surprise. 
<laughs> one of the, I know you're probably sitting there like, why, why is everybody, why, why is everybody calling me? This judge apparently watches a great deal of cable news. Um, yeah. I'm pretty certain it's not CNN or MSNBC, <laughs> but you yeah. know, what, <laughs> right. whatever, whatever he is watching. But uh, let's talk about the behavior of this judge for the layman. It seems as if he's going above and beyond. I, I, as someone who practices law every day, have not seen a judge quite act like this uh, repeatedly. Of course, I've been lambasted and told to sit down. Just recently, a judge told me that I need to stop digging, which is good advice sometimes. (laughs) So uh, is this judge's behavior uncommon? Did you find any issue with it? I mean, from the rulings of dismissing the gun charge to his, you know, kind of extracurricular comments about you, all of these things. Yeah, it's very odd. Um, I, I, I think the ultimate impact on the trial may, may not be as big as those of us who have followed the case and covered it may suggest. You know, most of the judges' intemperate outbursts have taken place outside the presence of the jury. And that's fortunate, I think. Uh, he, he, he is uh, very sensitive to criticism. He is, um, you know, paying too much attention to the news media. But, um, you know, I think it's, again, a good insight for the public to be able to see how some judges behave. You know, there's, a, there's, there's an old joke, um, which uh, trial lawyers are familiar with, is that somebody's going up to, going up to uh, heaven and he's talking to St. Peter and St. Peter says to this new arrival, you know, you want to stay away from God today because he thinks he's a federal judge. (laughs) And uh, and, um, there there is this sort of megalomania that sometimes comes with a black robe is is evident. You know, I too, I I, I unfortunately was never a prosecutor, I was never a defense lawyer, but I was a prosecutor. And I was, I remember being yelled at in such ways that were like surreal uh, in, in, the, in the intensity. Uh, but, you know, judges often do that because they're trying to protect the record and, may, and, and make a fair trial. I, I don't really have a problem with that. I do think what's been weird about this is that all the ire has been directed at the prosecutor. And, you know, on one occasion, I was actually sympathetic to what Judge Schroeder said, which was when it really did seem in the cross-examination of Rittenhouse that the prosecutor was commenting on his, his silence. silence. Yes. Which, you know, is a real red flag and, and is something that is prosecution 101. You are not allowed to do that. And even though the prosecutor had an explanation that he was talking about media comments by Rittenhouse, not, not statements to law enforcement, it was really unwise. Now, I, I, I and so I, I didn't, but but some of the other stuff that that he's been exercised about, I think was 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 very overstated. But just in I, overall, I, I my guess is, and again, you know, it's, it'd be very difficult to prove this one way or another. It will not have a big impact on the outcome of the case. Yeah, I've I've stated that I thought that the prosecutor was a habitual line stepper, and that the judge was doing a lot to protect the uh, defendant in this case. And so, well, and, 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 and again, it's worth pointing out that a lot of judges are very pro prosecution 
And a lot of judges give prosecutors a lot of leeway. So it may be that this <laughs> prosecutor is what was used to a certain degree of deference from, from other judges, and he didn't realize he was dealing with someone different here, or at least someone who had a different view of this particular case. I was thinking about this interview for uh, the past 24 hours, and you know, I, I decided I'm going to give you your, your next topic for your next, you know, 8,000 word, 10,000 word masterpiece that you're going to write. But talk about the through line of vigilanteism in this country from Ahmaud Arbery to Rittenhouse to January 6th. Am I looking at this the right way? Is there a well, common I, I, denominator? I, it, it, and, and it's not just the vigilanteism. It's it's the public reaction to it. That's the thing that is so shocking to me about the Rittenhouse case is that, you know, to, to look at social media, to look at Fox News, to see how Rittenhouse has been made into a hero for this crazy decision as a 17 year old to get involved in this dangerous situation, which ended disastrously. That's the thing that's so um outrageous to me. And also, I, I have a particular personal angle um, to this, which is I'm working on a new book now, which is about the Oklahoma City bombing uh, from 1995 and Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And, you know, th that was, uh, among other things, uh, an act of vigilanteism. It was, I mean, McVeigh was outraged about the killings at Waco, the, the shooting at Ruby Ridge, the passage of the uh, Brady Bill gun law. And, he, you know, he, he took the law into his own hands in an, in, in, in an extreme way. But to me, it's all part of a continuum. It, mm. it, 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 these stories are all related. And, you know, yes, we have had a vigilanteism in, in our country off and on for a very long time. What's different to me now is that the um, support that the vigilantes are getting from, you know, big sources like Fox News, and I would, of course, include January 6th riot as well. It's, it's all this idea that individuals who are angry about uh, government policy uh, have the right to, to take matters into their own hands is really scary. But to me, what's even more scary is the degree of public support it's got. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't even think about the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. Is Timothy McVeigh still alive? No, he was executed in 2001. Terry Nichols is still alive. Is Terry He's Nichols is still alive. What, have you sat down with Terry Nichols? Sorry, um, you, uh, <laughs> not yet. Um, we, we're we're uh, the, 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 it's uh, the, stay tuned. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, I um, I'm looking forward to to this verdict in the Rittenhouse case. I think that it's going to be a very complicated one. I have a huge problem that I'm not able to separate. Scott Jennings and I were having a conversation. It's difficult for me to separate the law and emotion in this case because I just see uh, Tamir Rice and and a lot of others who didn't get the same benefits or grace of their youth that Rittenhouse is getting. And it's just, that is very disturbing for me. Well, I, you know, I, I tweeted something about this that, that, that got a lot of, you know, sort of viral attention, which was, you know, imagine that, you know, a 17 year old black kid shoots two people dead in the middle of a scene 
like this with a gun that he's not supposed to have with a, you know, with no training. And um, I think this unfolds in a, in, in a very different. Well, there's no trial. No, he's dead. They, they kill him. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, um, you know, the, also what, you know, again, the, the side issues are so interesting the way, uh, Rittenhouse goes to the cops afterwards and the way the cops treat him, you know, with a, with a giant gun that he's carrying and they treat him like one of their own, even though he's just killed two people. It's just, it, it, it's, it's surreal to me. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the Supreme Court, um, if we can. Let me ask you, why won't Breyer retire? Like, what, what is that about? Well, you know, it's it's Democrats are bad at this. We just we just are bad well, at this. I, I, you know, this is where you know big political issues turn into very personal issues. I mean, you know, he is eighty three years old. He's very healthy. He has been on the court for a long time. He has not had a lot of seniority on the court for most of these years. He is now the senior liberal with, um, you know, Sotomayor and Kagan. And he has this vision. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with Stephen Breyer, interviewed him many times. And, you know, he has this passionate belief that the court is and should be treated as an apolitical institution. Um, and. I think it's it's both wrong on the merits and it's wrong as politics. And I think it, it's blind to the realities of the world. But that's what he believes. And uh, I think he 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 views a resignation under a Democratic president as uh, a concession to a view of the court that he doesn't agree with. I, hmm. I, I think the story is not over. I, at this point, given the incredibly hostile reaction um, to his decision to stay on the court one year, you know, with the Democrats still in control, presumably um, through uh, the midterm elections. I mean, remember, you know, they are they are a heartbeat away from losing control even before the midterm, Correct. Correct. Um, you know, with the death or, or resignation. one sickness, one resignation. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I, at this point, I would be very surprised if he didn't retire at the end of this term in June of 2022. 2020, but, you know, it, 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 it seemed like the rational choice would have been to retire last year. And we'll see what happens. Is Kentonji Brown Jackson the shoe in to replace him? I mean, if if Democrats are in power, I mean, or is I, it, I think like, she is she is close. She is close to shoe a shoe in. And, you know, she she. You know, Biden has said he wants to put a the first African-American woman uh, on the court. There are really only two plausible candidates in that category, Democratic appointees to to appellate courts. Uh, Ketanji Jackson um, on the D.C. Circuit. And oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on her name on the California Supreme Court. Yeah, I was. It's late. Uh, uh, I, I, Leandra. I know her name. Yeah, Kru, uh, Leandra Kruger. Uh, Kruger, Kruger, Kruger. Yeah, I would um, also throw Michelle Childs in there because she's 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 actually about to be on the. I believe they're probably going to make a move to put her on the Fourth Circuit. But well, she the Fourth was, Circuit. She's a district court judge in South Carolina. Correct. Right? correct. Yeah. Yes. Um. I, you know, I I think she's a little older too. I think. Uh, I'm a. I still practice in front of her, so I'm gonna let you say that. Well, I'm. 
but she also but but she also one of the unique things about her and i want to hear your philosophy on it is barack obama and joe biden have this propensity to it's a love fest with harvard and yale and ivy league degrees and background and it bothers me i mean you know michelle childs for example doesn't have that and she has different lived experiences which i think are a value to the court not a detraction i think I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, b- before um, uh, Amy Barrett, who went to Notre Dame, w- went on the court, every single court ju- justice went to Harvard or Yale. And I think that's that's just a mistake. And uh, I think the, the reason it has come up so often is that appointing judge, it's not just affection for Harvard and Yale among presidents. It's the ability to argue that credentials matter more than politics, that you senators should vote to confirm my nominee because that nominee is just so qualified. And and Harvard and Yale are markers of qualification. I think it's basically a phony issue because what what presidents care about is ideology, not uh, qualifications. Yeah. And they're just using qualifications as a, as an argument when, in fact, it's not really the main reason anyone is appointed. So um, that said, I would like to see, um, you know, diversity is, you know, usually defined in our world as race and gender. But to me, diversity means a lot more than that. Correct. I mean, it means race and gender, but it also means it's more it's it's more encompassing than that. In the context of social class, in the context of professional background, I think one of the things uh, Biden has done particularly well and better than Obama is that he has expanded the professional pool for uh, his nominees to the lower federal courts. There are a lot of defense lawyers, you know, uh, who who have been nominated under a couple of public defenders, if I'm not mistaken, former public defenders. Absolutely. Which uh, Obama was very much heavily uh, weighted towards former prosecutors, Um, even even, you know, liberal politically, but still former prosecutors. And I think Biden's um, interest and and not just interest, but but the fact that he has nominated so many former defense lawyers and public defenders is really a good thing for the courts. And it's a kind of diversity that um, you really should be valued. And and I certainly value. So another question, I think one of the most consequential, I mean, in my, my adult life, I think John Roberts' decision on the Affordable Care Act John Roberts' decision to gut the Voting Rights Act. And then just recently, this Texas abortion case are going to be the transformative cases of the past. I don't know. It's Citizens United, of course, but these are going to be some of the more transformative cases. Have we seen the end of Roe v. Wade? Uh, doesn't Texas, doesn't the Texas uh, abortion case kind of tie in with this vigilantism that we've been talking about as well? Well, I'm not sure about vigilantism. And, and, and frankly, I think that the change to Roe v. Wade is is more likely to come from the Mississippi abortion case, which is going to be argued on, on December 1st, um, than the Texas case. I, I, I can see this court, based on you know what we've seen uh, already from the court, getting rid of the Texas law because of its bizarre structure. Where It's, where, it's a standing issue, isn't it? I mean, you, you got well, individuals it, with no standing filing these cases? Well, that, well, 
the Texas law as passed, SB8, the Texas law passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, creates a whole different regime of standing than we have ever seen before, where anyone anywhere <laughs> can sue an abortion provider in Texas. And you saw in the oral argument that um, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Judge uh, Justice Kavanaugh, were concerned about this, perhaps because you know a liberal state could say anyone anywhere could sue a gun manufacturer for you know a, a, related to crimes. It's 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 a it's a hornet's nest that I'm not sure this court wants to get into. However. The Mississippi case is a straight up law, no no procedural mystery about that law that says 15 weeks, uh, abortions after 15 weeks are prohibited. You know, everyone acknowledges that 15 weeks is before viability and, and the viability, viability has been the touchstone of abortion law since Roe v. Wade in 73, since um, the, the Casey case in 1992. And, you know, in, in one of the debates be, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on, in the 2016 campaign, Trump said, you know, if I get appointments to the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is gone automatically, automatically. And you know what? He had three appointees to the court, including replacing Kennedy and, yeah. and Ginsburg, who were, you know, who were the key votes for abortion. Roberts, who believes in, in sorry, decisis in the, in the rule of precedent has now voted for um, to protect abortion rights in a couple of recent cases. But there are five other votes. Roberts is the sixth conservative on the court, not the fifth anymore. And I just think um, whether the court says the words that Roe is gone or just decides a case in a way that makes Roe gone, I think Roe is gone, as, as John McCain liked to say. Elections have consequences. And uh, Donald Trump won won the 2016 election. He got three appointments to the Supreme yeah, that's, Court. You, you don't want to say it. That's not his. That's that's not what happened. You don't want to say it. I'll say it. RBG should have retired when Barack Obama was president. Well, I, I mean, uh, I'm happy to join you in that. It's funny when you say it, people look at you and they jeer. And I'm like, no, that's a fact. I mean, she no, took a, she and, took and, a political and, and, gamble and that Hillary Clinton was going to win. It was a selfish act on her part. I mean, it was a gamble. Know, if you care, about, and and this is why people are so outraged about Breyer's decision to stay on the court because they're looking at another scenario. I mean, if the Democrat, the Republicans retake the Senate in uh, 2022, I don't think there is any way in the world Mitch McConnell gives Joe Biden a a, a vote no. on. Uh, on any Supreme Court nominee. He'll hold it open for two years. Some rule, just as he invented a rule to prevent Merrick Garland from getting a vote. And so the clock is ticking on Breyer's seat. And and Justice Ginsburg uh, lost her bet. And um, that's, you know, that's just the state of the the Supreme Court right now. And, um, you know, Democrats have to live with it. Look, I, I'm, we're running short on time. I wanted to ask you about the Biden Justice Department and prosecuting Trump. But since we have only a few more moments left, I'll just save it for my best question. Tell me, you're, you are an expert on this field, but I firmly believe it was O.J.'s son. It wasn't O.J. Simpson who actually committed these murders. Tell me why I'm silly for thinking that. <laughs> uh, you are silly for thinking that for so many reasons. Um, 
Um, <laughs> ju- just, you know, let's talk, you know, the, the OJ Simpson case. By the um, way, me and Bill Simmons want to have you on together just to talk about OJ Simpson. I, I would be happy to do that. Um, the OJ Simpson case was, you know, a big national, international phenomenon. But you know what it was? It was a domestic violence homicide. OJ Simpson had beat up his wife once. He had been violent with her in the past, and he ultimately killed her. It happens every day in America, sadly. And the evidence at the scene was overwhelmingly pointing to OJ. I mean, how many did Jason Simpson, what's his motive? He had no motive to kill um, Nicole Simpson, much less Ron Goldman. And, you know, why did, did OJ's footprints leaving the scene I mean, come on, there's like a size 11 shoe leaving the scene with OJ's, you know, wearing the Bruno Magley shoes. I mean, it's just. Was Johnny Cochran that good? I mean, and you know about you, you got, if I'm not mistaken, there was a OJ Simpson had an issue with the polygraph that you found out about. Yeah, the, the polygraph is, is so irrelevant. I, I don't buy polygraphs. I mean, yes, he flunked a polygraph, but so what? I, that, to me, is not of no significance. Right. What significance is that he, and he also he cut his hand, and he's bleeding, leaving the scene. Oh, my Lord. I haven't thought about this uh, much. <laughs> you, but I, 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 you two have to have a sit down. I mean, I, that's the only thing left. I mean, you I and O.J. Know. Simpson need to have a sit down and chat about it. That's what you I want to um, I, I'm not sure that's like the best use of either of our time, but, but if you arrange it, Bakari, I'll be. I'm going to talk to Zucker and see if I can get a primetime slot, 30 minutes for Jeffrey Tubin versus OJ Simpson. Lord. And we'll have Alan Dershowitz be able to ask you the first question. Boy, it's 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 like this. You, you're playing. This is my life. Have <laughs> gone uh, in and out of my life over, over the many many years. Oh my goodness! Well, thank you, my brother. It's always good to talk to you. Or one of the most brilliant people I know. I'll see you in the green room one day soon. I hope you have a blessed day. Thank you, Counselor. You too. All right, bye.